You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. Okay, if you would come on back to your seats, grab some last coffee or pastries if you want. On your way, if you'd open to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23 is where we're going to be today. Feel free to use one of those hardback black Bibles on the resource table. And if you're using one of those, you're on page 884. So Luke 23, we're going to be in verses 32 through 38 today from Luke 23. As Maggie said earlier, today is the first Sunday of Lent. And how many of you here grew up in a Christian tradition that celebrated Lent as you grew up? Okay, a handful of you. Some of you maybe have never heard of Lent before. That's okay, either way. Uh, Lent is something that Christians have practice together for a long time, throughout uh, many centuries. And one of the reasons we want to do this Lenten preaching series is just to call to mind really the purpose of Lent, which is to have our kind of minds focused on Jesus as he heads to the cross. Lent is celebrated during the 40 days minus the Sundays from Ash Wednesday through the last Saturday before Easter. And as I said, it's been practiced by Christians over the centuries as a way to focus our attention on what it means for Jesus to have died on the cross for us. So in order to help us bring our attention to his sacrifice, one distinctive that's been a part of Lent is to fast from something. Uh, I grew up in a Roman Catholic family, and so we fasted from meat every Friday, which for me honestly wasn't much of a sacrifice in central Minnesota where there were fish, fish fries like every Friday night. And we bought a lot of filet fish from McDonald's during Lent. And so I enjoyed the change. It wasn't uh, that big of a sacrifice for me, to be honest. Uh, but the intent of fasting is to remind us of our need for Jesus, to call to mind our own idols and our sins, to give thanks for the sacrifice that Jesus has made on our behalf. And so as a church, we want to have a Lenten series. I don't know if we'll do this every year, but we felt called to do it this year to help us as we approach Easter together. And so we're going to spend the next seven weeks looking at the seven statements of Jesus from the cross. And we've called this series Unveiled because not only was Jesus physically stripped bare on the cross, but his true character is revealed through these seven statements. And in our passage today, we are going to be confronted because the Savior that we need is not always the Savior that we want, but it is the Savior that has come. And so if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's word, we'll read in Luke 23, verses 32 through 38. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Grab a seat and I'll pray for us. So, Father, we thank you for your word that we get to open together yet again this week. What a privilege it is for us to open your word together, to hear from you through it. And now, would the word of God enter our hearts? And would your spirit help us to understand what you have to say to us? The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word will stand forever. And so we're asking for your help. Would you open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things found here in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1805, Pennsylvania Governor Thomas McKean was up for re-election, and the editors of a Philadelphia newspaper did not want him re-elected. And so they had a full-page ad challenging their readers to vote against him saying, quote, today will be held the most important election you have ever been called upon to attend. And since then, in almost every election for the past 200 years, some version of this statement has been repeated. In 2020, then presidential nominee Joe Biden tweeted in early October, there's just one month before the most important election of our lifetime. Two days later, Bernie Sanders called it the most important election in the modern history of our country. Jim Messina, who was a former campaign manager for President Obama, said that the reason that we do this in campaigns is because we need voters to believe that their future literally depends on their vote. And so every candidate promises to solve our problems, making us believe that the fabric of our lives depends on them getting elected. And then they get into office, and they accomplish some of what they promised, but mostly fail to provide the substantial change to our lives that they have guaranteed. And so then, four years later, we do the same thing, and now it is the most important election of our lifetime, until four years later, when that one is the most important election of our lifetime, and so on. This hyperbolic rhetoric creates expectations in us as citizens, and then it inevitably causes those expectations to go unmet which makes us discontent, it makes us frustrated, because unmet expectations are painful. They're devastating at times, or they're just at times irritating. Unmet expectations can come with something as small as someone not showing up on time, or sometimes as large as a president not fulfilling their campaign promises. And one of the reasons that Jesus is rejected by his own people is because of failed expectations. God's people were anticipating a certain type of Savior that was called the Messiah. And they had certain expectations in their minds. They had certain categories for who this king would be that God would send to save them. And Jesus didn't fit their categories. He didn't fit their expectations. And as we look back on this story today, we might ridicule their failed expectations, but we have them of Jesus as well. We have certain a certain type of king that we want Jesus to be. And so here's the message of the sermon today. The Savior who came is not always the Savior we want, but he is the Savior we need. If we are willing today, by God's Spirit, we will start to see that it is not just their failed expectations that were a problem, but ours as well. And so for our outline of the sermon, we're going to look at three portraits of a king— The first is the king that we see, the second is the king we want, and third is the king we need. So first, the king that we see. 
Luke here, who's the author of this gospel, gives us several details about Jesus as he heads to the cross. And the king that we see here in this scene is the one who's about to die in humiliating fashion. The first description we get is that Jesus was led away with two criminals in verse 32. And the way Luke wrote this is intentional. He says, two others, and we get that comma there. I think the ESV translated this well for us, because then Luke gives us that detail. It's really important. Who were criminals were led away to be put to death with Jesus. Luke is highlighting the contrast here. They are actually criminals, but Jesus is innocent. He does not belong in this execution line. The second detail that he gives us is that they were brought to a place called the skull in verse 33. This is also known as Golgotha in Aramaic, which is how Matthew uses that word, or Calvary in some of our English translations. And this is important because that place was somewhere that people would get crucified. It was supposed to happen outside of the city, often along a major highway and a public place where they would be seen It would be a way of warning other criminals not to repeat these crimes. It was a very public place. It was meant to be a place of humiliation for those who are being crucified. And the third detail that we get here is that they cast lots for his clothes in verse 34. And this highlights the physical exposure of Jesus on the cross. This was another way to humiliate somebody and to shame them and for them to be executed naked. So Jesus is exposed in every way. He's brought outside of the city. He's crucified in a public place. He is stripped of his clothing alongside criminals. And our series is titled Unveiled because it is really meant to have a dual meaning for us as we use that word. On the one hand, Jesus is literally unveiled on the cross because he was stripped of his garments at his crucifixion. And the second meaning that we intended was to say that the cross revealed or unveiled Jesus's true character. When we are put under pressure from our circumstances, our true character cannot help but rise to the surface. And here Jesus is at this significant trial, and we see who he truly is. One way that you could think about this as an illustration is the way that if you put water or pressure on the outside of a water bottle, you'll eventually kind of see the water come out. I have a water bottle in my hand here, and if I were to squeeze this water bottle really hard, water would come out of it. And my hand in this way is like the pressure, the circumstances that I'm putting on the water bottle. For Jesus, this is the excruciating pain of the cross. For us, it might be the stress of parenting this week. It might be the pain of physical sickness. It might be the strain of a relational conflict. They're all circumstances. They're all pressure. And what happens when pressure is applied is that water comes out. What's inside of us is what comes out when pressure is applied. Paul David Tripp, in his book, How People Change, talks about this sort of, illustri- or this sort of dynamic when he reflects on James's teaching on trials in James chapter 1. Paul Tripp writes, a trial is an external situation that reveals what is happening in the heart. If we respond sinfully to the trial, it is not because we have been forced to sin, but because our hearts have chosen to do so. And one of the principles Tripp is trying to get at there is that our circumstances and our response to those circumstances are not the same thing. Now, this does not dismiss the difficulty of those circumstances. Some of you have incredibly difficult circumstances going on right now, and God is sympathetic to those challenges. 
He himself did not withhold suffering. He experienced it in Christ on the cross. But what comes out when we are put under pressure is something that we want to see and confront in ourselves. And in Jesus, what is revealed continues to be his perfect love for people and his willingness to die on our behalf. And my challenge to you throughout this series and today is to be willing to see what the trials and circumstances of your life are revealing about your heart. Throughout the series, the pressure of the cross is going to reveal Jesus' true character through these seven statements. And as his character is revealed, they will also confront us of our true character. So be open to what God's Spirit wants to help you see about Jesus and about yourself. The king that we see is a crucified Messiah, led outside of the city like a criminal, stripped of his clothes, hung in a humiliating and shameful way, and continuing to love people to the end. Now, the second portrait that we see today is the king we want. Now, before I try to explain this second point, I'm just going to tell you what I want us to see today. Okay, I want us to acknowledge that we are more like the religious leaders and the Roman soldiers that mock Jesus than we want to realize or admit. So first, we'll look at the religious rulers. The statement that Jesus makes in verse 34, forgive them, is contrasted with their wrong expectations of the one whom they mock. In verse 35, the religious rulers scoffed at him, or another way of translating that word scoffed is to say they turned up their nose at him. They're saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The word Christ also means Messiah or chosen one. And in Isaiah 49 verse 7, God spoke of a coming chosen one, of whom he said, kings will see and arise, princes they will lay prostrate, Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Jesus is supposed to be the chosen one from Isaiah 49, 7. And if that was true, these religious leaders are thinking kings and princes are supposed to bow down to him. He was not supposed to suffer in this way. But what the religious rulers missed from Isaiah 49, 7 is that just before Isaiah describes the way that nations would one day bow down to the chosen one, he also says that the Redeemer would be deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. They wanted the chosen one to whom princes would prostrate themselves, but they did not understand that the pathway to that praise would come through the scorn of the cross. And it wasn't just the religious leaders who scoffed at Jesus. It also tells us that the soldiers who were there mocked him as well in verse 36. There was an inscription over his head that called him king of the Jews in verse 38. So the soldiers here are making fun of him. They're thinking, if you're a king, then save yourself. And these soldiers are Roman. They did not have Jewish expectations of the Messiah in their minds. They're operating out of the paradigms inherited from Roman culture. And the contrast of the title above Jesus' head, King of the Jews, and him hanging on the cross was comical to them. One commentator wrote of this, that this pitiable figure could be king, even of such an inconsequential group as the Jews, was laughable. The soldiers also take for granted that no bona fide king 
would suffer so ingloriously and would not have the means to extricate himself from his predicament. The scoffing that we see here at the cross is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23 that it was a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Today, the cross has become such a common symbol for us that we take for granted the significance of Jesus dying in such a humiliating fashion. Scholar and theologian N.T. Wright has compared the crucifixion in the first century to the impact of portraying a man today with a hangman's noose around his neck or seated in an electric chair. And so for the next several hundred years, Christians continued to be mocked for worshiping a God who died on a cross. And even fast forward several more thousand years, and Friedrich Nietzsche, a 19th century philosopher, disdained the cross. He thought Christianity was a religion to be pitied because we worshiped Jesus, whom he scornfully called God on the cross. Nietzsche said that Christianity was so pathetic because, and quote, it preserves what is ripe for destruction, namely the weak, the poor, the downtrodden, the marginalized, and so thwarts the law of evolution. He did not like the paradigm of the cross because it creates a people who care for those who would otherwise become extinct in his mind, which is contrary to the way evolution was supposed to work. Now, we think we've come so far here in the 21st century that we care more about the dignity and honor of others than Nietzsche or those who ridiculed Jesus at the cross. Behind the mocking of Jesus is a basic ideology that he was weak and that if he was truly a king, he would defend himself. And that ideology is more pervasive to the human heart than we are often willing to acknowledge. Last summer, Russell Moore published a book by the title, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America. At one point in the book, he shares a story of a congregant whose logic sounds eerily familiar to those who mocked Jesus at the cross. This congregant said to their pastor, we tried the turn the other cheek stuff. It doesn't work. It's time to fight. And then more comments on this. He says, we have arrived at the point at which for many people who name the name of Jesus Christ, Christ-likeness is seen as compromise. How did this happen? Now, my goal here is not to answer all the questions of history and how this happened, or even to give a theology of cultural engagement. What I want us to see is that the vision of a suffering Messiah who displays remarkable constraint and love for the people who are crucifying him has not only become anathema to segments of our culture or throughout history, but also to some who claim the name of Christ today. And it's not just those on the political right who want to justify their need for power by saying that the turn the other cheek stuff isn't working. They're not the only ones saying that it is now time to fight. In 2017, political scientist Erica Chenoweth wrote an article for The New Republic, which is a progressive magazine out of Washington, D.C. And Chenoweth was writing not long after President Trump won his first presidential campaign. And in response to the alt-right and the rise of the alt-right that came in the wake of President Trump's political victories, there were several violent protests in opposition. 
For example, at UC Berkeley in early 2017, 100 masked agitators started fires, hurled rocks, and attacked other protesters, all in response to the speech of an alt-right activist. And Chenoweth's responding to that. And she's arguing in her article that nonviolent protests and civil disobedience are actually more effective. But she was critiqued by other progressives because, in the opinion of some, nonviolent actions are for privileged sellouts. Now, let me repeat myself. My goal is not to give commentary on civic engagement. I'm not giving you a theology of that today. I want us to see that we are not so different from those who mocked Jesus at the cross. We still have many of the same fundamental ideologies, and we want, God, we want a God who's going to vindicate our cause and condemn our enemies. This was highlighted again recently, and maybe I'll step into some controversy here now, but it was sparked recently at the Super Bowl as a new ad came out about people washing each other's feet. The Washington Post deemed this ad the most controversial ad during the Super Bowl. It centered on Jesus' humble act of washing his disciples' feet in John 13. And we should ask ourselves about our cultural moment. When an ad about serving others like Jesus becomes the most controversial ad during a Super Bowl, Now, if you didn't see the ad or hear about it afterward, the ad portrayed people whom our culture puts into opposition with one another, washing one another's feet. An officer is washing the feet of a black man. An older woman was washing the feet of a young pregnant woman outside of a family planning clinic. One protester was washing the feet of another protester outside of a controversial speech, and there are many more. And afterward, the headlines from both sides of the political spectrum show that it didn't land very well with conservatives or with progressives. Fox Business had an article that read, Super Bowl foot-washing Christianity ad faces attacks from the left. A Newsweek article's title read, Christian Super Bowl commercial outrages conservatives. I'm sure some of you have opinions about this ad, whether it should have been done at all or how it was done. Everyone seems to have some type of opinion about this. But again, why are, why are we in a cultural moment where this becomes the most controversial ad at the Super Bowl? And here's what I want us to see. The idea of Jesus as a suffering servant, whether in the act of washing feet or hanging on a cross, it is still as controversial today as it has ever been. And what if one of our biggest problems with Jesus is that he loves people that we despise. He welcomes people that we would rather not spend time with. Now, the ad was not intended to give a theological exposition on justification or sexual ethics or Christology. It was meant to affirm the dignity and humanity of all people, even people with whom we disagree. And now think about Nietzsche's critique of the cross. He did not like God on the cross because it affirmed the dignity of all people, or in his words, it preserved what was ripe for destruction. Deep down, we are more like the mockers than we want to admit. We want a king who's going to win and who's going to validate me while opposing my enemies. But here's where I want us to see this third portrait of a king. The king that we see here on the cross in our text may not be the king that we always want, but he is the king we need. And so finally, I come to Jesus' statement from the cross in verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
His statement here about forgiveness comes in the context of him being misunderstood as the Messiah whom others thought would come and condemn. And here's what I want us to do for just a moment. I want us to work through this little thought experiment. At the cross, we see Jesus offering forgiveness and dignity to others. And in contrast, these religious rulers are there mocking him. And I want you to ask yourself, who do I put into the category of the forgiven? Who comes to my mind for that group? Now, we certainly want to put ourselves there, perhaps some of our friends. Who else goes into that category for you? Now, who would you put into the category of the mockers? Who do you think of as condemned for having scoffed at Jesus? Perhaps one of your neighbors. Certainly those who are on the opposite end of whatever political spectrum you find yourself on. And I have to confess, in anticipation of this sermon, I knew I was going to ask you this question, and I had to ask myself the question as well. It's painful for me to admit to myself how I have rejected others who disagree with me. People came to my mind, and God's Spirit calls me to repent. Even some who claim the name of Jesus, I put into that category. We like to think of ourselves as the forgiven and our enemies as the condemned. They deserve judgment, we think, but we certainly don't. Now, perhaps you've already caught this, but my little thought experiment is not very fair to the text because the ones that Jesus is asking the Father to forgive and the ones who are mocking him are not two different groups. It is the same group of people. And what if we are more ripe for judgment than we want to admit? And what if our enemies are more loved and forgiven than we want to believe? We like to think of ourselves as the forgiven, but in order to be forgiven, that means at one point we must have been appropriately judged. Forgiveness is not necessary for someone who is not guilty. We like to think of our enemies as the condemned, but if we are offered forgiveness... Why aren't they? Miroslav Volf is a highly respected scholar at Yale Divinity School. He was born in Croatia, and his family and friends experienced suffering and atrocities through political oppression and economic deprivation. And in his book, Exclusion and Embrace, he talks about how many of his colleagues do not like the idea of judgment because that sort of God leads to violence and bloodshed in their mind. But for Wolf, this is not just intellectual theory. He witnessed the sort of suffering most of his colleagues only theorize about. And he has argued that the only way this cannot be a devastating thing for a survivor who has suffered, the only way to call people out of a a cycle of violence and retaliation is to point them to a God who would be the perfect judge and to make all things right in the end. The forgiveness that we want which Nietzsche despised, only comes along with the judgment our culture rejects, which Nietzsche embraced. Wolf argues that you cannot have one without the other. It is only when we see ourselves among the community of sinners in need of forgiveness, and when we see our enemies among the community of humanity who are also offered forgiveness, that we can truly understand what Jesus is doing on the cross. And that is the only way to be freed from this cycle of revenge and violence and oppression. Wolf wrote, Forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans 
even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. But no one can be in the presence of the God of the crucified Messiah for long without overcoming this double exclusion, without transposing the enemy from the sphere of the monstrous into the sphere of shared humanity and herself from the sphere of proud innocence into the sphere of common sinfulness. When one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that the torturer will not eternally triumph over the victim, one is free to rediscover that person's humanity and imitate God's, imitate God's love for him. And when one knows, as the cross demonstrates, that God's love is greater than all sin, one is free to see oneself in the light of God's justice and so rediscover one's own sinfulness. Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And what they do not know, what they do not see about themselves, is that they are the ones for whom Christ is dying. They are among the community of the judged who are in need of forgiveness. And along with those who mocked Jesus, we are quick to turn Jesus into the king that we want and miss seeing the king that we need. In those moments, we do not know what we are doing. What is ironic about this entire scene is that the mockers look up at Jesus and perceive him to be weak. As that congregant said to his pastor, I am done turning the other cheek. It doesn't work. It's time to fight. But Jesus did not die in weakness. It was not weak for Jesus to hang on a cross and offer forgiveness to those who put him there. That takes remarkable strength. Most people who were crucified at this time yelled at their executioners. They would curse them, condemn them, spit at them, and revile them to their last breath. To condemn your crucifier was a very natural response, but it would not be accurate to call that strength. It takes far more strength to love your enemy to pray for those who persecute you, to offer forgiveness to those who are crucifying you. Christ on the cross was not weakness. It was not a deviation from the mission. It was the mission. It is what he came to do. With resolve for his purpose, he died in our place. As he says in Mark 10, 45, he came, to, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It is not weakness to restrain ourselves from cursing our enemies and to display Christ's love for them. If we're going to be the kind of disciples of Jesus who take redemptive risks to be a force for good in our relationships and in our communities, we need to understand what Jesus is doing here on the cross. In the end, the king that we need was a king who offered forgiveness to the world, not one who condemned the world. If we are honest, we have to admit that we at times want the king who judges, but only if he judges the enemy and leaves us alone. But we see that we are rightly judged right along with our enemy, and then we will come to see the king that we truly needed, who has offered forgiveness without preference. The only condition for this forgiveness is that we see our own need and embrace the fact that God has offered it to us He's offered us the forgiveness we need through Jesus on the cross. The Savior who came is not always the Savior that we want, but He is the Savior that we need. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.